Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. And so you just had this chain of events with it kind of like a game of telephone, where at each step you're getting further and further from sort of the ground truth. So subsequent to all that, I decided that this was completely unacceptable, pushed the Wall Street Journal to retract or update their story, which to their credit, they did do. It was a pretty milk toast correction, in my opinion. I mean, journalists never want to correct themselves. It's all they have. It's like their pride. So the fact that we even got uh, what I think was a meager correction was still a huge win. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two pawns. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, um, I named trading firms who were very involved. I like that ETH is the ultimate Ponzi. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. The quick intros, first we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Tom, you got to say your little thing. I'm, so, I'm supposed to say something now? Okay, there's my voice. <laughs> Hopefully you okay, identify great. me. Perfect. Robert, the crypto connoisseur and czar of Superstate. It's going to be a spooktacular episode. Ooh. Uh, it, is, it is the day before Halloween that we're recording this. Uh, and then we've got a special guest, Nick Carter, the illustrious reformed Bitcoin maxi. I don't have a catchphrase, but yeah, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> this is this is actually, I, I, I kept your same catchphrase from the previous time you were on the show, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, and then I'm Hasib, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. Nick, it's great to have you on the show. You are, at least for the moment, the main character of Twitter, or at least you were uh, going through this last weekend. I went back through your previous appearance on the show, which I don't know if you remember, but it was the day that FTX collapsed. That's insane. So we, we ran this special episode right when the uh, CZ had just made the initial bid saying that we are taking over FTX. And we live streamed a show. It was you, me, Tom, and Laura, because everything was insane. I think none of us had slept in like 36 hours. It was so interesting hearing. I, I listened to it back because I was just like, when I saw that, because I went to go look up what your title was at that time, because I was like, okay, I want to keep some continuity. When I saw that, I was like, what did it feel like then to hear all of us processing what was happening the day that FTX was collapsing? Now, having like read the SBF book and watching SBF go through cross-examination and all this stuff, now that we know so much more, it was incredible how naive we all were and how much credit we were still giving to Sam. Mm. We were talking about him being like this regulatory golden boy wonderkin. And we were like, oh no, there's no way that Alameda is really that bad. Like I'm sure there's a better explanation. Like it was so, it was so innocent. I think the way we were seeing all this at that time. I was going to ask you, did any one of us have an actual sense of how bad it was at the time? No, 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 no. Every single one of us was like, this looks really bad. But I'm sure it's not actually this bad. Something must have gone wrong. They must have misplaced the books, you know, something weird happened. But like, you know what we were talking about? We were talking about how 
bad this is for the industry because Binance is going to consolidate market share. That's what we were talking about. That's amazing. <laughs> Predictions are hard. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. How, how does it feel uh, now looking back on the SBF trial? So for, for context, SBF trial is still underway and as is uh, contractually obligated, we have to talk about the SBF trial. Last week it was off. This week it was back on. On Friday, uh, SBF began giving testimony. So his direct examination, meaning his lawyer was asking him questions, started on Friday. Uh, it is now Monday night. And on Monday was the day that the cross-examination began, basically meaning the uh, assistant attorney general started examining him and asking him a bunch of questions through cross-examination. And uh, it so far is looking pretty bad for SBF. He has been more or less denying, 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 denying. So they'll ask him a question and say, did you ever say that, uh, you know, the, the, I don't know, did, did you ever say, one example that people seem to be fixating on, did you ever say that uh, keeping your hair long and crazy was good for the brand? He was like, I don't recall ever saying that. They say, okay, interesting, let's play this back. And they would play a recording of him saying, I don't cut my hair because it's good for my brand. They say, mm, that sounds like something I may have said at one point. And they just did that over and over and over again, apparently for the entire day. And a lot of things him saying, I do not recall, I do not recall. So we're still halfway through the cross-examination. It's going to continue tomorrow. Uh, gentlemen, what's your perception seeing how this court case is playing out? Well, I'm not a legal expert, so my analysis is that of a total layman. However, it doesn't seem like he has a good chance. Um, you know, a lot of people who are lawyers commented that it's very rare for a defendant to like take the stand themselves. I see why now that he's done it. I don't think it seems like it's been in his favor. It seems like more than anything, you know, he doesn't have good answers for any of this stuff. Obviously, the odds of him having good answers were pretty minuscule as it is. So I'm taking the consensus legal opinion that representing yourself is rare for a reason and that most people are cautioned not to do it because you know, it hasn't done him any favors. I think, you know, as an outsider, this has only lowered the probability that, that a jury finds him innocent. Now, juries seem like they're wild cards and who knows what's going to happen. I mean, I still put this at like a too high of a chance that there's a mistrial or like a hung jury or something crazy. But it doesn't seem like this has gone that well for him. It doesn't seem like his legal team is great. It doesn't seem like he's gotten good advice. If he has gotten good advice, it doesn't sound like he listens to it. You know, we saw this when he was running around the world doing deal book, doing every podcast he could post collapse. He's not working with an A plus team of legal counsel, or he's just ignoring what they have to say. So I don't think his chances are good. He, do, he also doesn't seem at all contrite. I mean, maybe now is not the part of the trial where you show contrition, but he seems very obdurate and defiant still. So to the extent that that matters in sentencing, he's kind of failed that test as well. I bet you that yeah. doesn't change at all, ever. Even like post-sentencing, I bet that doesn't change. Well, he's totally. trying to get out of sentencing, right? The goal is to never get to sentencing. <laughs> right. I understand that. Once you get to sentencing, yeah, that's when you start bringing out the I'm sorry, and I, you know, I can't believe that. I'm such a good guy. Yeah, it, it just feels like, hey, he's trying to shift some of the blame off of him without directly pointing fingers at the other lieutenants. But yeah, I mean, the cross-examination has been digging out evidence, Sam saying, I don't recall, or that may be something, and then them presenting the evidence. And like, it's really damning stuff. It's like the fuck regulators message that he was like, you know, sending with the other FTX people. And so 
It's like, you know, the Fifth Amendment only works when, like, they don't actually have the evidence and, you know, but, like, if they already have the evidence, like, you just look stupid. <laughs> yeah. And it, the, the judge is also really not having any of this shit. Like, I think at some point, Sam says, I don't recall. And the judge is like, look, just answer the question. And so it really doesn't feel like things are going particularly well, but um, I guess we'll see. I remember when he was doing the media blitz immediately after the collapse, when he handed off the bankruptcy keys and then went on deal book and all these places start talking about, you know, Twitter spaces and all this stuff. And I remember at the time, you know, all the lawyers were saying like, this is really dumb. You should never do this. This is such a bad idea. But all the crypto people were like, wow, he's still like, he has such amazing PR instincts. Like he knows exactly what to do and like to put, to come out in the open and fight the narrative and blah, blah, blah. He has this 11 dimensional chess in his mind. Uh, and, and it turns out, no, he didn't. You know, it turns out, turns out everything that he said in those Twitter interviews and on DealBook and in all those things, it's all getting played back in front of the jury now. And this is exactly the reason why they tell you, don't do this, because no matter how you know uh, open and direct and appealing you think you are, uh, and obviously he thinks he is very open and direct and appealing, eventually you're going to say something that contradicts what you later want to say. And if you want to say like, look, I had no idea what was going on, then you say, I fucked up and we didn't, I did not put enough risk management into place. It's like, well, it sounds like you know that you made this error and you were aware of it and you let it get away from you. And then the contradictory stories about, oh, it's about a risk margining system and that that was what went wrong. And now obviously that's an untenable position to have taken. So it's like, okay, well, either you lied then or you're lying now, which is it? And, you know, boom, now you, you, there's, there's no way a jury's going to buy that you didn't understand what was going on. Well, the problem is this line of defense and this like approach that he has worked in elementary school. And it's possible that <laughs> this used to work for him even later in life by just being like, oh, I, you know, I have no idea why that went wrong. We did our best. You know, it doesn't work in a criminal court of law for like one of the largest disappearing money, you know, situations in history. But it's possible that he you know, has had former success with this, you know, in lesser stakes situation. I remember he was getting a lot of plaudits at the time when he was doing his press tour. People were saying, hey, has Sam found like an alternative way to deal with a scandal? Like, it, you know, he's really gunning for it. Is it going to work? Um, didn't work. In fact, it, yeah, didn't I, work. those receipts are now showing up in the trial. Well, it's, it's, it is admittedly early to say, but right now I saw um, Martin Shkreli was making bets on Twitter. <laughs> he was like uh, making a market on the odds of uh, him getting uh, convicted. And I think, what was it, like 100 to 1 that he beats all the charges? Something like that. So right now, if that's, that's the good. market, it's not Sounds about right. right. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, speaking I would, of, of, I would put down ten dollars just as like a hedge for the sake of our industry. Like if he gets off, we're all screwed. <laughs> so you, yeah, you'd make uh, what is that? Ten thousand dollars? If uh, yeah. no, sorry, thousand dollars. Wait, no, yeah, yeah, sorry, thousand dollars. Yeah, you'd, you'd yeah, make a thousand dollars if hundred. Yeah, yeah. So you'd make a thousand dollars if our industry <laughs> exonerates SPF. <laughs> I don't know how much that's going to hedge you, but yeah, that's a yeah, it would be bad. Decent move. I'm slightly embarrassed how long it took me to figure out that 10 times 100 is 1,000. But anyway. We don't do math. We don't do math. We, yeah. just, you know, we just sign term sheets. We take whatever terms we're given. Spe speaking of betting, I think we talked about a little bit about like the overflow room uh, last time. And I had to get there at like 2 or 3 a.m. in order to actually hit the, the main room. Um, there's a great article from The New Yorker out about um, the dynamics in the overflow room. And it sounds like a party. People are like making odds on um, 
how many times SPF's lawyer is going to object and people are like vaping <laughs> and like playing music and like, yeah, it's like a, cause it's just the, you know, it's just like a live stream of the other room. So, you know, if you are in New York and you want to have some fun, you know, 500 Pearl street, they're waiting for you. Just uh, go and you know play some bets and uh, see how the trial turns out. That's amazing. Wait, have you gone to, how have you not gone to the overflow room yet? I, I have, I have a job. Um, I've been wanting to go, but, uh, it just has not really worked out, but oh man, I don't know, maybe. Well, we got, we only got a week left. Supposedly yeah. they're going to wrap up cross-examination later this week. And then jury goes into deliberations Thursday, I think something like that. Yeah. So we wow. should have a verdict before too long by the end of next week, supposedly good chance that we're going to have a verdict. So crazy times, but, uh, unfortunately if SBF is your hero, it's not looking good for him. I'm, I'm sad to say. But uh, for the rest of the industry, I think people are roughly what folks were expecting was that this was not going to go well for um, for, for Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried. So, uh, Nick Carter, you are the man of the hour, going back to our illustrious guest. Last time we talked about the first inning of the story with the Wall Street Journal and Hamas and all the reporting around crypto terrorist funding, I gave a, a pretty admittedly short shrift exposition of what exactly happened in the story. But I'd love for you to recapitulate from beginning to end, for those who are just tuning in, what happened with the Wall Street Journal? What did you do? And how did all this end up in you being crowned uh, the hero of crypto Twitter? Yeah, my gosh. Okay, so, so much happened and it's very complex. So um, if you all will bear with me. So this all traces to three administrative seizure orders issued by the uh, Israeli government, the uh, National Bureau for Counter-Terror Financing, and uh, over the last eight months or so, they've issued three seizure orders where they basically just list wallet addresses and Binance accounts. And they say, yeah, you know, like Tether freeze these funds or Binance freeze the funds. And one of them was related to this affiliate of Hamas called uh, the PJI, Palestinian uh, something, Jihad, Jihadi maybe. Something. Yeah. And um, the other two didn't actually mention Hamas or anything. They mentioned uh, the Dubai Company for Exchange or the Al-Wifak Company for Exchange, which I actually don't know how those relate. No one's actually explained that part yet. And then, so there's kind of like an epistemic chain here where you start with some degree of precision and then as you move down the chain, you get further and further away and you get more ambiguity and then you get to something that has no precision whatsoever. And so the next link in the chain was Elliptic published a blog early this year, adding up the kind of nominal flows connected to the wallets for one of these seizure orders. That was a really important piece of evidence. And then BitOK, which is another uh, analytics firm that I'd never heard of actually before this whole thing, they also uh, published their own estimate of flows related to these wallets. And so combined, all of those flows added up to about $130 million. It was mostly... Um, Tron, actually, mostly Tron wallets. And then, you know, the attack, I think it was the 8th of October happened, and the Wall Street Journal kind of pounced on that, and there was that catalyst, and they referred back to the elliptic estimate of sort of terror-related flows based on the wallets that had been released by the Israeli counter-terrorist financing group. And they just repeated the elliptic and the bit okay data. Uh, so pretty credulously and effectively claimed that Hamas or its affiliates had raised this amount to finance their operations. Um, so 
that was kind of the mise-en-scene. Uh, of course, there were some problems with that analysis, namely that you know the Israeli counterterrorist group, they may not have been looking for precision when they listed all the addresses. They might have just been going for a pretty scattershot approach. Chainalysis then released a blog post cautioning against this kind of analysis where you just sort of naively add up all the flows in a cluster of wallets and declare that that's all related to this one type of activity. And they suggested, although they were kind of giving an example, an illustrative example, they suggested that some of the flows had nothing to do with terror financing. They were just affiliated brokers or kind of OTC desks. Elliptic itself then released an updated blog post where they actually changed the legend and the chart that they'd published and didn't acknowledge the change. Um, and so really softened the language there. And they also said, yeah, actually, you know, uh, the Wall Street Journal misinterpreted the data. One thing I forgot to mention, of course, is that Elizabeth Warren used the Wall Street Journal article as her sole source for her letter, which was signed by 100 members of Congress, basically asking the Biden admin to really tighten up sort of counter-terrorist financing rules. And she characterized crypto as sort of a major way that uh, Hamas was funding itself. And so she really sees the moment there using exclusively the Wall Street Journal source, using only their interpretation. And she claimed that Hamas had raised over $130 million. Uh, so we kind of started from this list of addresses. Then you had a couple chain analysis companies doing what I think is now, we know, is a pretty naive analysis of the flows through those addresses. And then you get to Elizabeth Warren with no caveats, definitively stating that Hamas raised over $130 million to fund their operations. And so you just had a, this chain of events with it kind of like a game of telephone, where at each step you're getting further and further from sort of the ground truth. So subsequent to all that, I decided that this was completely unacceptable, pushed the Wall Street Journal to retract or update their story, which to their credit, they did do. It was a pretty milk toast correction, in my opinion. I mean, journalists never want to correct themselves. That's all they have. It's like their pride. So the fact that we even got uh, what I think was a meager correction was still a huge win. And I then also put together a bounty program to get sort of our community of sort of on-chain wizards to actually look at this data and try and ascertain what the actual number was. And that's the process we're in right now. I think I've paid out 15 bounties I said that they would be 500 bucks a piece, but you know that I could flex that up. Uh, so I've paid out a, you know a few thousand dollars in bounties. I've like thirty thousand dollars left in the bounty pool. So I still want people to do this analysis. We haven't gotten to the bottom of it. And the other thing we'd like to do is to get the signatories to the Elizabeth Warren letter to actually retract their signatures now that the epistemic environment has really been muddied. So that's kind of where we stand right now. And so I think just by getting the Wall Street Journal to moderate their language has been a huge key win and one that we almost never get as an industry. But we need to basically keep pushing and explain that you can't be that definitive with these this on-chain data, which is very ambiguous, very complex, very hard to reason about, that was kind of wildly overstated by the WSJ and, and by Warren herself. Yeah, it's it's one thing to say, like, look, we have confirmation that there was $130 million raised. Like, that's totally fine. It's totally fine if you have evidence of wrongdoing to say, ah, well, here's what happened. It's not fine to just sort of basically live in, in, in the world of innuendo and say, look, it kind of looks vaguely like something like this was going on on chain and therefore 
crypto is very dangerous and it's being used to fund Hamas. Um, in fact, the, you know, one of the most striking things about the story is that we know, as Tom, I think Tom mentioned this last time, Hamas has backed off from crypto donations precisely because of the fact very that clearly. they're not getting any and they keep getting frozen. And so to the extent that we have uh, conduits already within crypto to go after bad actors and people who, in general, we don't want to be doing business with or who are sanctioned for that matter, they already get the message. That's why they're not raising money through crypto is because they know it's a terrible way to do it. Yeah, there's two, there's two more things to note there. So the cluster of addresses that seemed affiliated with Hamas, maybe, or affiliates, they ceased activity when uh, contemporaneously with the seizure order going out, which was pretty damaging, I would say. Like, you know, funds were seized in tether terms, Binance accounts were seized. There's this one fundraiser run by Gaza now where they raised $21,000, so not a huge amount. 2,000 of it was frozen on Binance, 9,000 was frozen by Tether itself. So, you know, the authorities are actually pretty good at interdicting this stuff. When someone contributes to a public fundraiser, they can also be associated, you know, with Hamas directly. So now there's a chain stretching back to them. So what Hamas said was, hey, to protect our donors, we don't want to raise money. It was actually Al Qasam, which is an affiliate of Hamas. To protect our donors, we don't want to raise money in crypto. So, while you have the organization itself saying, hey, we actually want to focus on other sources of funding, we don't want to focus on crypto, which is pretty visible, and in some cases can be frozen. At the same time, you have Elizabeth Warren, the Wall Street Journal, very confidently saying, this is a major source of ongoing fundraising for them. And that's just a crazy juxtaposition to me. Okay, I was gonna say, based on the information you do have currently, with the current level of analysis that you've been able to gather, you know, can you put together a a range of what you think the total fundraising that Hamas received in crypto transactions was if it's not 130 million? What's the magnitude and like what do you think you know the best knowledgeable range is in your opinion? Yeah, it's very hard. And uh so I have my minions out there doing the analysis. What we haven't had so far is someone who works at Chain Analysis weigh in directly, which is kind of what we need because ultimately the main database here is which addresses literally are concretely known to be affiliated, right? We don't have any details on the methodology used by the Israeli intelligence, so we can't have high confidence in that. I will say that the PIJ-linked order, so there were three orders. The third one was the PIJ-linked one. The other one, the BitOK profiled, I, it's very unclear to me that they're actually Hamas affiliates. I haven't actually seen evidence of that. So the PIJ-linked order uh, was a $93 million was acclaimed total flows. There was duplication in those flows because it appears to me that Elliptic was counting intermediate transactions within the cluster as part of the total flow, which is wrong, right? You can't just add up the nominal flows, especially if one wallet sending to an affiliate wallet, then you're double counting. So I think there was at least a 15% overestimate there. But then the ultimate thing is, there were also what looked like exchange wallets or broker wallets that were in that sample. And those, I think, should probably be stripped out because they may have been facilitating this stuff, but they weren't exclusively terrorist financing. So I'd say my upper range right now is kind of the sort of $80 million range. But within that $80 million range, I think a large portion of that is non-Hamas-linked wallets that were just basically brokers. Uh, but yeah, hopefully in a week's time, I can come back to you with a better answer. 
Well, Nick, sorry, just I, I know very little about blockchain analysis. Why would you care about the flows and not the stock? Right? Isn't what we care how much money they got in the end as opposed to how much money was going through a thing? Yeah, it honestly, to me, it makes the whole concept here is wrong because if you are counting up nominal flows between addresses, you're going to get a crazy high figure, right? For sure. You care about the stock, obviously. Their methodology, as far as I can tell, was to add up the inbound transactions to every address in the cluster on a per address basis without contemplating the linkages or the relationships between the addresses. So of course you're going to inflate the figure. Of course you're going to inflate the figure. It it sounds like to me the most important number when determining how viable this channel was for them is how much money were they actually able to receive and spend on terrorist purposes. And it sounds like you know, yes, like the numbers are potentially still large of how much they received, but it also sounds like a lot was seized and didn't actually get into their hands, therefore able to be spent. And it sounds like whatever the number is, it's going to be drastically lower than the headlines. And, you know, as a percent of the total funds transmitted, it's going to be a fraction of it versus other channels. Um, you know, I, I saw on Twitter there was going around, you know, a photo of three suitcases of physical currency that was going to Gaza, and people were mad at Netanyahu's government because it was like aid money, like in the form of bills in suitcase. And it seems like that's a situation where a hundred percent of what was transferred was likely received and able to be spent. Versus in this example, you know, it being seized along the way you know, it not being a suitable channel for them and not one that they're looking to repeat due to its unsuccessful nature. Yeah, yeah the whole I, point of the story is that the money was seized. Right, right. Like they didn't get that money. That's why, that's the big number comes from, we. Th- that money was taken away from Hamas. Yeah, they so, learned the hard way that it's a shitty way to raise money. It's not anonymous and it gets seized. Yeah, I mean, Tether, you know, is actually really active in terms of um, responding to law enforcement. I think this is a myth that people have about Tether that they like don't listen to Western law enforcement. That's like all they do. They have 20 employees and, you know, one of them's Paolo and 19 of them are these guys that just got emails from law enforcement <laughs> and, and then they freeze uh. the addresses, you know, so Tether's actually been really active here. Tether and Binance are both under a ton of pressure to do this. So I can assure you, this is what they're doing. Do you have any sizing based on what's publicly available of how much total assets Tether has frozen just in aggregate over the last six years? Oh, man. There's a Dune dashboard for there this. There is actually. a Dune. I was going to say. Oh, Tom's pulling, pulling, oh, yeah. pulling that up right now. He's pulling that up right now. But, but Tether has blacklisted more addresses than USDC, which most people have the opposite impression. But as, as Nick mentioned, no, Tether, they're on top of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, they, I, look, I, 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 don't, I don't tend to claim it's perfect, but they are certainly responsive to law enforcement, especially when it comes to stuff like this. And I mean, this is the thing about stablecoin, fiat backed stablecoins, right? Is you can't freeze cash at a distance, but you can freeze stablecoins at a distance. So it doesn't surprise me that it's not that useful for terrorist financing, obviously. Right. Those suitcases are riding in a car right now, unless you're in that car. <laughs> There's no ability to ever. There's a great quote. I think it was in the um, Senate uh, hearing about the uh, whole financial crypto terrorist thing, terrorist financing. Um, there's this guy, Dr. Shlomit Wagman, who is the former director general of the Israel Money Laundering and Terrorism Finance Prohibition Authority, who said, crypto is currently a very small part of the puzzle for terrorist financing. 
In the case of Hamas, quote, most of the funds are still being transferred by the traditional channels, including banks, money transmitters, payment systems, money exchanges, trade-based terrorist financing, charity, cash, and shell companies. So I found a new dashboard dating that I stopped running, I guess, in um, April of this year, where they list $460 million frozen. Yeah, that's tether. what I'm looking at. That's it's, a, um, maybe the most recent one. They did not migrate over the new Dune query engine. So um, Shogun, if you're listening to this podcast, you got to migrate Shogun. your query over. Shogun, migrate your goddamn query. You're ruining our show. All right, we're gonna we're um, gonna add we're gonna add Shogun. Yeah, yeah. We fork his Dune migrate. Yeah, please, please. <laughs> but just go, um, just go in there, edit the edit the. Can you add comments on Dune dashboards? I don't think yeah, I guess so. you can't. Me, uh, okay, you can't like go and edit his and just like add a line that's like it. migrate your query. Let me, let yeah, me fork, fork it. it. Tom, if you tweet this right now, by the end of this show, we're going to have an active Dune dashboard that the community has made. So just like, <laughs> we need to start a chopping know. block Dune dashboard. Yeah, 100%. We need yeah. to start a chopping block Dune account. One thing yeah, people don't know is rated. Tether is more active in freezing addresses than USDC. Like, Tether loves to freeze addresses. I did just say that, so I hope oh. they know by now. Sorry. <laughs> I, I think I said that speak. like 20 seconds ago. Yeah. All right. You might it's have heard late. that from me, Nick. Yeah, Brain actually. ain't working. Brain not working. Okay. Good, 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 good. Um, I think, Robert, you touched on this point, though, which is, I feel like kind of like the, the missing part of this story, and I'm interested, which is like, and maybe this is my naivete, but it's it's like, okay, but where, how are they spending the money? Like, are they paying Hamas members with Tether? Are they buying arms with Tether? Like, where, where are those people then spending the money? Like, there's, I feel like there's a whole missing half of the story, which doesn't make any fucking sense. And no one has ever really in depth explained, like, this entire sort of life cycle. Right. What do the off-ramps look like? I don't think there's some like crypto exchange that, and by the way, this is a really naive question. What is the actual currency that Gaza uses? Someone do should not know. know. Yeah. <laughs> Someone go ask ChatGPT. I have no idea. Okay. Well, yeah. The key question then is how do you get from? A shekels. Oh, they're using Israeli they shekels? Israeli or Israeli shekels in Gaza. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So the suitcase is yeah, full of money that people are mad at Netanyahu over were shekels. So it's the same currency. So the question then is, what's the off-ramp between crypto to shekels that Hamas is using? Yeah, maybe they're getting the money back into Israel to then go offload it off crypto exchanges. Right. Like, if you're following the money, I haven't you know seen that process. And I, I feel like that's an easy off-ramp for Israeli you know, counterterrorism and money laundering and, you know, the U.S. financial system and like the courts to be able to target is like, who's the bad actor? <laughs> that's to, going- to be clear, that is what happened, right? That is right. like when Israel is like, that's the, yo, go get them. Right. They kept it on Binance. They're doing it so well that Hamas is like, let's give up on crypto. <laughs> Sounded right. good in theory. In practice, it sucks because Israel keeps finding us and taking the money away. Right. Did they get any of it off of Binance into shekels? I mean, this is the kind of reporting we should expect from the journalists, right? It's not just sort of like vague insinuations based on like clusters of on-chain data that nobody understands. It should be, hey, we identified these AK-47s were purchased with Tether. But not that leg of the story has not at all been uncovered at all. And you know why, Nick? Because it's incredibly easy for you and everybody to trace the flow of crypto transactions. It's basically impossible for the public at large to be able to analyze a fiat transaction. Yeah. And Hamas had a Barclays account. They had a Barclays account too. 
So should we true. shut down? True, the true, banks? true. Well, Barclays yeah. has a history of you know money laundering, <laughs> bad behavior. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I will, I will just add that the other reason why we don't have stories about people, you know, Hamas buying AK-47s with tethers, is because the tethers keep getting fucking frozen. So let's just let's just bring it back there. That yeah, the reason why the other leg isn't happening is because it isn't happening, which is why Hamas moved away from crypto. So I just want I want to make sure that everyone underlines that that's the backdrop of the whole fucking story is that Hamas like you don't need to argue about why should Hamas use crypto or not use crypto they already figured out they shouldn't use crypto so we don't need to give them more of incentive to not use crypto like we, this is not a big problem that needs solving the problem has solved itself already so going in and saying ah well but we we need to add all these extra rules and we need to make sure we KYC every single wallet and we need to make sure that you know unhosted wallets now are are uh, you know have enhanced KYC applied to them we don't need to do any of that because the problem is already solved the issue though is that like roughly 20% of our legislators at the federal level don't think it's been solved. Right. And exactly. They're operating on bad information. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Which is at least what we do in this show. I want to at least underline that part of this story because otherwise I feel like it's easy to get lost in the whole kerfuffle. But even pro-crypto legislators signed this letter. I went through the whole list and there are some guys on there that are staunchly pro-crypto. But on this matter... It's like the Nash, the NATSEC part of their brain takes over and like that's more important than the crypto advocacy. Yeah. And and the reality is that you know it's it's so hard to undo a, an incorrect story that feels true. And the the idea that crypto is good for terrorist financing feels true. It just does. And it it's even true for people like me and you. We understand intuitively why the story feels right. And why having a bunch of people on the internet yelling at you, telling you, no, it's not. And it's hard to analyze on-chain data. You're like, oh, these people, they work for the crypto lobby or whatever. But to me, the most obvious answer to this is like Hamas stopped taking crypto. Dude, like Hamas already stopped doing it because it's so bad. Like this before you showed up, before you started yelling that crypto is bad and we should ban all of it. They already stopped doing it. That's how bad it is. They didn't stop using cash. They didn't stop using shell companies. They didn't stop using banks. They stopped using crypto on their own, even though crypto is fucking free. And we're, when we're at the point where we're trying to explain the nuances of on-chain analysis to senators, like we've already lost at that point because they're never, totally. they can invest the time to understand that. Of course. I mean, it's a very difficult subject. They don't want yeah. to be lectured about it. Right. Well, I think the more valuable thing then is to find the things that are directly responsible, like to find the bank, whether it's Barclays or to find, you know, the actual institution that was facilitating crime and terrorism and to try to hold them accountable because it's, you know, the 99.9% .9 of the financing that's not getting talked about, like more of a spotlight needs to be shed on. I don't think that know. works, man. I don't think that works. I don't think you're going to convince, you know, Elizabeth Warren that like, oh, the, the problem of the bank. I mean, she already hates banks. Fine. But, you know. Like the problem is not the existing regulated system. I, I think to, to my mind, and I could be, look, I'm not a political strategist, so I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But to my mind, I think that the, the part of the story that's compelling is that, you know, what does it mean for Hamas to say we're no longer accepting crypto donations? Putting up an address and saying send money here is free. There's no upkeep. You don't have to do anything. You just leave it up there, right? They took it down. So what does it mean they took it down? That means that it's actively harmful to them to have this address up because so much of the money that people would otherwise be sending there gets taken by Israel. So the money goes to Israel. Money's like, no, 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 no. Israel, yeah, yeah, you, don't, you don't get this stuff. This is for terrorists who are trying to attack us. We will take this instead, right? It actually hurts Hamas to have money in crypto as opposed to having a Barclays bank account.
So actually, crypto is be- like crypto is actually better for the good guys than a normal banking system type way of uh, receiving money. That feels like that is an actual counter narrative. Like crypto is so much safer that actually it's it's so bad for Hamas that they don't even want it. Anyway, sorry, I'm I'm getting 100%. worked up over this just because I feel like I I but it's 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 it, yeah it feels like that story is not getting told. So instead, people are like fighting this tit for tat kind of thing, and it feels like that's never going to gain any traction. To the you credit know, of okay. the industry, though, I have seen us galvanize around this. And normally, it's like so asymmetric in terms of rebutting a bad story that people don't do it. We just kind of suffer it. In this case, I've seen a lot of work in the press and on the policy side as well, which is happening behind the scenes right now, to just combat the negative effects of this bad story. So I'm actually really encouraged by the reaction I've seen. I think people realize the stakes are extremely high. That's been great to see. And I also, I will say, uh, although we, we alluded to it before, you, know, you have been personally integral in, in starting this campaign and galvanizing the crypto community behind the story. And it, it's not the first time you've done it. And so you personally have done a huge public service to the industry. I know, you, I know you've heard it because you've become, you know, crowned the sort of uh, the God King of, of crypto Twitter. But I wanted to personally say what you're doing for crypto in general is awesome. And oh, you deserve all you. the praise you're getting. There's one piece of alpha which people don't know, which is the reason I did this was because I tore a tendon in my foot last Sunday. And I've been in pain for the last week playing Padel, actually. And I was just so mad on Monday morning, mostly because of the pain. That is what actually pissed me off and wow. compounded this whole thing. So, you so anytime think, things are Bidell. going wrong, somebody should come and like actively hurt just, you. Yeah. And that'll <laughs> Thanks, Padel. Padel. I'll remember that. I'll remember that. Ski pass and let them. I've just been out. in agony all week, and it just pissed me off so much. Oof. Okay. Yeah. I was I was half imagining that you were going to say the reason why you did this was because you are in the Twitter uh, creator monetization program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get two hundred dollars a month. It's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Got it. I didn't realize. Yeah, it's not um, great. Okay, wonderful. Well, um, great. Well, I hope that this uh, this story ends up with a good resolution. I think right now we're still waiting on the the lawmakers who signed up to this story and those who amplify the story to come to grips a little bit with it. But knowing the nature of politics, that might be uh, you know a uh, an unrequited hope. I think we'll have actual defections from the letter, and I think also in a few weeks' time we'll have actual decent chain analysis, which tells us with a much better position what the number is. So you can hold me to that. That would be amazing. Okay. So um, we've got another story on the docket today, which is about layer zero. So there's this drama brewing in the uh, Lido layer zero world. So layer zero is a interoperability protocol that allows you to bridge from one chain to another, as well as send arbitrary messages. And uh, they are competing to try to become the de facto bridge for Lido. So Lido has this asset, WST ETH, which is, uh, you know, basically wrapped staked ETH. And Lido was trying to encourage a bunch of bridging protocols to uh, give proposals to the DAO so that they could become the canonical bridge that Lido tries to concentrate the liquidity so that the liquidity is not fragmented across many bridges. And so many bridges were coming in. Obviously, it's a big prize. Lido is a big protocol and it's going to, you know, wrapped ETH is going to end up in a lot of different places. And so uh, the Lido community got very upset at Layer Zero. Actually, uh, uh, one individual in particular, Hasu, who is 
think like chief of strategy or something for for Lido, if I'm not mistaken. He became very upset at the way that Layer Zero was sort of pre-marketing its bridge as though it had already been accepted by the DAO. And this was accused by Hasu as well as some other uh, commenters within the Layer Zero ecosystem, or sorry, the Lido ecosystem, as being a kind of malicious attempt or bad actor type behavior to route around the legitimate governance processes because people were going to assume that this bridge has already been chosen as a canonical bridge and it just needs to be essentially ratified as a formality by the DAO. But the DAO now is going to be under this political pressure to not end up doing the full process of evaluating many different bridges. Some people think this is overblown and like, look, this is just an entrepreneur who is marketing their protocol and that's what you're supposed to do. Other people think that uh, layer zero stepped out of line and what they, what they did was very inappropriate. Want to go around the room here and get reactions. What you thought of this whole drama, if this was really a big deal, if this is a minor hiccup uh, or if it deserves the vitriol it's getting on crypto Twitter. Nick, what's your take? I have to admit, I haven't been up to date on this one. I don't know. I've been distracted. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll let you react after everyone else's react. You can, you can yeah, react I'll to the reactions. Just, I'll steal something they, they say. Tom, what's your take? This feels like an overzealous marketing person who just kind of pulled the trigger on something without thinking about it. I don't get the sense there was a whole like, you know, master plan with malice behind it when this was sort of put out. But it also like, I almost came out, I was, I, like the first thought of my mind was like, are people moving like wrap staked ETH to like other chains that often? Like if you're on, Solana, I don't even know the, the chains that everything, but if you're on Solana, like do you really want like wrap staked ETH? I guess maybe if you're on like a roll up and, and so I was looking and like, yeah, I mean, it's like a few percent are on of wrap staked ETH are on roll ups, but wrap staked ETH is also a small percentage of staked ETH. So it, it, it feels, you know, uh, like people are really fighting over a very small pie to an, to an extent, but um, I, I don't know. I can't speak to the Lido DAO side. Well, disclosure at Robot Ventures, we are investors both in Lido and Layer Zero. So we're biased on all fronts here. Um, <laughs> hey, every, it's all honest misunderstanding. Everyone here is a good boy. Don't so, you worry. Love Layer Zero, love Lido, love them both. You know, I don't think it's that big of a deal because Lido itself is a permissionless system and anybody could build their own wrapped wrapper around Snake Ether. Right. Like it's an ERC 20 token that rebases. Obviously, you want to build a better wrapper for it to be able to move around chains and do all this cool stuff. I could go roll my own wrapper for it tonight, you know, by asking ChatGPT to fix my broken solidity. But like anyone can do this. And like, I don't think that process of rolling out a new version is a bad thing at all. To Tom's point, it was probably an overzealous intern who, you know, framed it as like, oh, this is the new canonical version when it was like should have been framed as hey we made this version everyone is free to use it if they want otherwise like you don't have to at all but they were probably just trying to like go to market faster this doesn't seem like that big of a deal and it seems like something that people argue about when there's nothing better to argue about frankly i feel like we could do a whole app on like dow shenanigans this also reminds me of uh what all all the the shit over like the uniswap cross-chain governance thing and it was also yeah like this is all small in comparison to the big crazy dow chaos governance you know whatever stuff that exists out there like this is like not that big of a deal i'm a little surprised at the uproar because don't people permissionlessly bridge assets to other chains all the time without 
really asking for permission. In yes, the first I think place. it was the yes. way it was positioned in the marketing that this was the canonical bridge, or like mm. it's going to very soon be the canonical bridge before the DAO actually started the canonical bridge selection process. They were trying to front run being the most adopted system. Right. Got it. Yeah, it did feel, um, I, I, I think I more or less agree with Tom that it felt a little bit precious of just, you know, getting really upset over what was a, retrospective, a relatively minor transgression. But I think there was just a lot of built up animus toward Layer Zero that was coming from a lot of different directions to make this a bigger story. I agree it was probably, you know, it was not good. They shouldn't have done that, you know, slap on the wrist. But this is not like a, this is, this is not a felony. You know, this is like a speeding ticket kind of, hey, 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 <laughs> don't do that again. We caught you this time. Keep your hand out of the out of the cookie jar, and like back to business. That's what it feels like to me. But I don't know. Clearly, there's some people on crypto Twitter who are like, "This proves once and for all that Layer Zero are bad actors," and they're, I don't know. We're trying we're trying to get Hasu on the show, and maybe we can get his perspective next time he's on. But it's, yeah. it's like the 2017 meme. It's partnership confirmed. You know, it's uh, this mm. the partnership has been confirmed by <laughs> this one of the part by one of the partners. <laughs> yeah, like at worst, it's like they made up a fake partnership, so to speak. You know, like there's. DAOs out there rugging everybody and, you know, doing actually bad things. Like people should be focused on like the magnitude of actually bad things, not quasi announcing a fake partnership, so to speak. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, all right. Last story uh, before we wrap. So DYDX, uh, they recently announced that they were migrating to their V4, which is the fully permissionless version of DYDX that lives on a Cosmos SDK based chain. The entire system is now fully decentralized, or at least that's my understanding, ostensibly, that's what's supposed to have taken place. And as a result, after uh, launching onto mainnet, all the fees from the exchange no longer go to the business, which was DYDX, the C-Corp. I, I assume it was C-Corp. Uh, now they are pivoting to a public benefit corporation, uh, a PBC, as Tom says. Uh, everyone should know that acronym, which uh, I, I'd never heard before. But People's a PBC, a public benefit corporation. Exactly. <laughs> public benefit corporation, please. Thank you. Basically, what that means is that now the company more or less just services the protocol and all the fees go directly to the DYDX token. So DYDX has rallied on this. Uh, but Antonio on Twitter, the, the founder of DYDX, was taking, in, in, I think in, in this approach that he was taking, he took some pot shots at Uniswap. And a lot of this stuff was kind of sneering out the side of his mouth at what Uniswap did with taking a front end and monetizing the front end and having the company kind of take fees in opposition to the token holders. I felt like oh, great for DYDX, you know, golf clap, wonderful. Glad that they finished the move to decentralization, which is great. Um, but it, it does, I think for me, since we did that show where I kind of ranted about the Uniswap fee switch for a while, I've had a lot of people coming to me in agreement, but saying that they don't feel comfortable saying so publicly. A lot of DeFi founders, a lot of uh, uh, L1 founders who basically said, yeah, yeah, I, I find that to be really bad behavior, but you kind of can't go out on Twitter and say so because you're going to get mobbed by a lot of VCs who have a vested interest in saying, oh, this is great, this is, this is so sustainable. So curious what you guys think about this and whether or not it sheds any perspective on the whole Uniswap drama for you. Well, my quick take is that I feel like DYDX might have taken that approach because their company had already minted oodles and oodles and oodles of cash for themselves. And so they could take the stance of like, oh, you know, Uniswap is so bad. They're turning on fees to their company because they had already done it and filled up the suitcases metaphorically with, you know, <laughs> shekels and are like, you know, <laughs> past that point. <laughs> 
Um, so now it's fun to like dunk on your like one time quasi competitor, you know, but it doesn't make it right, you know, to say like, oh, we're a public benefit corporation. We're no longer taking fees. We're done taking fees because we made so many fees. Like we're good guys. Like, you know, let's how much in total up. do they make? Is north of a hundred, right? I, I've heard it's a lot. Yeah. Which is probably way yeah. more than the Uniswap front end is going to make. Like that's a Dune dashboard. That Clearly. Pull up. But it's like, okay, like they were basically taking all of the profits from trading on this exchange where the token distribution was incentivizing people to trade and they got all the fees back to their company. And it was like, you know, a stealth ICO for years, right? And now they're done. They've made enough money. It's like they high five. I don't think they have the moral high ground here. You know, if anything, they shouldn't have been taking all the cash over the last, what, two years? And it should have been going to token holders or to a public benefit corporation or to a foundation or whatever. Like, it seems wild that they, like, minted the truck of money and are now dunking on everyone else for starting that. All right. Well, I, I will rush to DYDX's defense, although we are investors in DYDX. We'll be at very small investors. Um, I, I would say that... Um, there's an element of truth to what you're saying, but at the same time, Uniswap Labs, uh, they, like Uniswap was decentralized from the beginning, more or less, right? Like they mm -hmm. really could have turned on the free The protocol, switch. yeah, Remember, absolutely. Though. Yeah, the protocol could have. DYDX yeah. was not decentralized until very recently. And so like when they were running DYDX as a central order book exchange, like running out of servers in AWS West or whatever, I guess probably not in the US, like they were running it like a regular exchange. You know, they had... They, they, they didn't take any U.S. customers. They, you know, they, they said very clearly, we run this uh, exchange, we have an order book, like we have a whatever. I don't know. Maybe I'm misrepresenting something, but that's my understanding more or less of how it was running. And it's really only now that they can say, look, this thing is actually decentralized, and therefore we can start accruing fees to token holders. Uniswap could have been doing that from the very beginning, but they just chose, they, they, you know, have ostensibly chosen not to and or the token holders have chosen not to. So it does feel different in that respect is that DYDX... If they had had the fees accruing to the token holders from the beginning, this thing definitely would have been a security because they're running the fucking order book, right? It's all running on their own servers. And they, and they admitted that very publicly. Um, and it's only now that they can say, look, it's not running on our servers anymore. Um, but second, even in the case of DYDX or in the case of Uniswap Labs, both of them have tokens on the balance sheet. So if it's all about getting $100 million on the balance sheet, both of them, the balance of their tokens is worth more than $100 million. So, okay, go sell 100 million of tokens OTC. Boom, you got 100 million tokens. You know, you got 100 million on the balance sheet. Fees or no fees, doesn't matter. You have the value. A lot. Like, if that's what it's about, that's what it's about. But I don't believe that's what it's about. I think I did tweet criticism of Uniswap, but I think they just didn't find me. Um, but I'm very sympathetic to the critique of Uniswap having, you know, pseudo equity and then equity and then picking one as the, you know, recipient of shareholder value. And, the, you know, I, th I think it could have been probably should have been the token, as you say, based on how decentralized they were from effectively day one. So I think that's the case study of the equity cannibalizing the token value. And I'd be very hard done by if I was a token holder. So I think there's a lot of substance to the critique, frankly. Tom, as the DeFi maven, what's your take? I generally agree. I do kind of agree with Robert, like is a little rich to be able to be in this position once you've made, you know, hundreds of million dollars in, in fees and, you know, you know, you'd be taking the, the moral high ground. But I mean, I think the, the, you know, a lot of times founders will sort of draw this, you know, Mongo, MongoDB, Red Hat, Fedora kind of comparison where it's like, oh, you got like 
you know, the automatic having the SaaS product and then you have the WordPress that's like making the software. The difference is there isn't a WordPress token and people don't think that they're buying into WordPress governance and they're spending their money on it. And like that is, I think, inherently the issue with this. And so I also was kind of thinking a little bit about like um, like OpenSea, right? OpenSea application, centralized server. They take a fee. They make money on fees on the volume. They also have Seaport. It's the open source exchange settlement protocol. Anybody can use it. A lot of other NFT exchanges use it. No one is mad that OpenSea is taking fees on top of Seaport, the open source software that they developed, because there's no Seaport DAO, there's no Seaport token, there's no sense of Seaport ownership and governance. It's just it's some software you can use if you want it, and it, it feels like maybe that's how Uniswap should have been from the beginning. But then you know in, incentives, timeline, all, all these sort of things sort of forced into one in, into one corner. But um, on the DYDX front, like what we'll see, um, I, I think. Um, you, you know, the other nice benefit of having a, a for-profit entity is I think it just kind of drives the right sort of shipping speed and motivation and incentives when you sort of have this, you know, fire to your butt versus sort of public benefit corporation or nonprofit, like who, who is really going to be sweating midnights trying to ship out product on time if there isn't sort of that that pressure to ship. So we'll, we'll see how things go. I wish them the best. And obviously, as you said, we are investors in DYDX, but um, I, I think it's it's hard to sort of keep that same startup energy and shipping speed when, you know, you don't necessarily have to. I, I don't know if I buy this story because like th- at the end of the day, all these founders have a shitload of tokens and everyone knows where their tokens are on chain. And so like th- the thing that's making Antonio work really hard for DYDX is not that it's a C-Corp and not a PBC, right? It, the thing that's making him work really hard is that he owns a shitload of tokens and he has a big vested interest. And if he wanted to try to sell that vested interest, like DYDX would tank and everyone would run for the hills and this thing would just fall apart. So it's the same thing like when you're a founder and your equity fully vests, founders don't just like automatically piece out the moment that their equity hits four years, right? They generally stick around. Now, what mechanism keeps them around? It's not that we like, oh, well, now that it's four years, you're just going to go up and run away. So we're going to make you revest your equity or we're going to give you more equity or we're going to do, usually none of that happens. Instead, people, yeah, they can leave, but if they did, they'd be destroying the value of the thing they created because they are the best leader for it. And this thing would be less valuable if he were to get up and bounce. That is kind of the question is like, I guess not so much Antonio, but are employees getting compensated with tokens? Is there, you know, incentive alignment there? I know in a lot of scenarios, like, you know, in, in, for the for, for profit entity, you aren't actually getting any tokens. Yeah, the company has tokens on the balance sheet, but like you're just getting equity. And I mean, maybe this always comes kind of down to the same issue of double dipping, different shareholder classes, misalignment. It all kind of feels like, um, you know, different sides of the same coin. So the one thing that it does feel like a thing, and maybe you had some experience with this is 0x, right? Because in the early days, when the protocol first begins, you give people tokens. And then, especially when you're in a bull market, the tokens go up and down. Some people are like, wow, I'm super rich. And then other people are like, wait, I'm super underwater. And you just get these wild swings in how people feel like they're being compensated. Some people are basically like, great, I'm going to go retire. And other people are like, wow, I, I totally missed the boat. Um, and whereas when you when you give people equity, uh, with the equity, it's like, well, it's kind of priced in this way that's kind of vague and it's not quite clear and liquidity is very far away. And so everyone's kind of, you know, that, 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 um, obfuscation, I guess you could call it seems to be helpful at just keeping people focused. How, how do you feel about that? I mean, you, you went through this at zero X. Yeah. I mean, early liquidity is a, is a blessing and a curse. I think maybe more a curse in, in most scenarios. I think, um, it's not unprecedented though. I mean, you look at, small cap tech companies, you know, their stocks down 99, 95%. And that's why you see a lot of companies shifting towards, um, 
uh, yearly uh, vesting and sort of true upping where you get um, the, the amount of equity that you get is based on a dollar amount per year. You don't get a fixed package of stock at the time or, hey, maybe the stock's down real bad. You know, you'll get trued up to a value that is more comparable to the value it should be. But um, I mean, I think in terms of incentive alignment, like that is kind of the issue is, hey, as soon as you know these things start to diverge, my ownership starts to diverge. Um, inherently, people are going to be incentivized differently. And I think for startups, kind of the, the talent that you want, the people that you want are um, people who are hungry and they want upside and they don't, don't just want to like work at a foundation and collect a paycheck and, you know, put in 40 hours. And I don't know if you're going to get the same kind of people when there isn't that kind of um, collective upside. Mm. Robert, you saw some element of this as well at Compound Labs. What's your what's your take on this? Well, I think long term, you know, simpler is better. And the less entities, the more simple. Like I, I think just from like a first principles perspective, the less possible things that could be an issue, the less things that are going to be an issue. Like I think there should be a single, you know, economic structure. I think it's probably cleaner. I think it's simpler. I think over time, the world will probably gravitate towards, you know, hopefully a system. And I think we said this on like an episode ago, you know, where there's just a protocol and just a token and nothing else. It's just that like, you can't start that way. It's impossible to raise money and like hire employees and like do all these things without some entity there. And so I think like the missing link is just going to be like, well, how do you like start with a non-equity, non-company beginning point so that you can just get to an ending result of protocol and token? And I think that's going to like be an approach that future entrepreneurs take as they figure it out, as they figure out the legal structures of how they can get things going. But like, I don't think things should necessarily start as a company because it starts it off on, you know, a slightly more complex footing right from day one. Got it. Nick, we got to wrap, um, but it's been a pleasure having you on the show. What should we be looking out for over the next week? What's, what's got you uh, excited? Well, I have uh, like 30 grand in bounties left to pay out. Uh, so if you work for Chainalysis or you're a low-level compliance officer in exchange and you have access to the software, please, uh, you know, illegally use it to uh, satisfy my bounty. <laughs> Please, <laughs> I'm like. Oh, to be clear, to... please legally use it. We Wait, do not endorse. Yeah, you know, no, the, you can defrauding yeah. your your employer on the show. Nick no, might you, personally, just, but we don't as a show. Use the software and tell me. Let's get to the bottom of this thing. We'll get the real data out there, and then uh, you know we'll we'll uh, you know conquer the Wall Street Journal once and for all and force a true redaction. So that's that's what I'm trying to do. Amazing, Nick. I thought Wall Street Journal was one of the good guys. Me too. Are we wrong now? Are, are, is, is Wall Street Journal now the enemy? Is that, is that the new I conclusion? I think if you're a press organization and thousands of crypto bros are harassing your journalists, then you're going to dig in your heels for sure. Um, but yeah, normally they're good. I'm very disappointed with the coverage here. I think they got very excited that Elizabeth Warren was you know, using their thing for her advocacy. And uh, so there are some bad incentives there in the newsroom. But yeah, ordinarily, I actually loved the journal for sure. Well, I read, I read the Wall Street Journal every day. I'm disappointed to see that they got this one wrong, but it sounds like things are moving in the right direction uh, with large thanks to, to your great work. So Nick, thank you for your service. You are the man. And uh, we'll, we'll be back very soon, uh, hopefully with uh, good news. Thanks, everybody. Right.